Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Mark Oakley. As you can see, I'm rather dressed for the occasion uh, today. Uh, I forgot my jacket, uh, so it's a bit cold, so I've kept this on. Um, I'm the Chancellor of St Paul's, and it's my uh, great privilege to uh, chair this event today. Uh, our speaker today is Dave Tomlinson, um, someone who describes himself as having a conformity deficit. <laughs> He's the author of a seminal book that you will know, The Post-Evangelical. Uh, more recently, he's written books such as How to Be a Bad Christian and a Better Human Being, and uh, Black Sheep and Prodigals, an Antidote to Black and White Religion, which is what he'll be talking about in just a minute. He's a regular contributor to BBC Radio 2's Pause for Thought, and many of you will know him uh, from that. Uh, personally, I have a memory, I don't know if he'll remember it, uh, quite a while ago now, back in the 1990s, of a visit that I made to something called Holy Joe's at the top of a pub in Clapham. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, David, uh, David asked me to give a talk to um, this large group of people who described themselves as disillusioned or bruised Christians, uh, church misfits, people who in many ways found the church to be too secular. Uh, and Dave and his wife Pat had set up Holy Joe's, providing a, a place, a forum really, for people who found regular church going unappealing uh, for many reasons. And uh, it was a very important day for me that. Uh, I remember it. Brilliant people. Uh, with big, fractured hearts searching for God together. And uh, it, started, it started a friendship um, that day. Well, Dave is now vicar of St. Luke's Holloway, which he describes as a glorious mishmash community of North London urbanites sharing friendship and groping after God. Uh, he has said that the best move he ever made was to pursue ordination in the Church of England, and he's going to speak for about 35, 40 minutes, and then there'll be some time, of course, for your uh, questions. We're going to finish promptly at 2 o'clock, and then you'll be able to buy a copy of his book, if you'd like to, at a very seductively reduced price. <laughs> Normally fourteen ninety nine, but yours today for £10. <laughs> The suspense is killing you, I know. But first of all, would you please welcome Dave Tomlinson. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming here today to uh, engage with my thoughts and ideas. Um, it's true, really, I think for the last at least 25, maybe 30 years now, uh, the focus of my life, my work, my ministry has been people who were at the edges of the church and the edges of faith kind of holding on by their fingernails and uh, wanting to try and help people whose faith was unravelling and their confidence in God and, and their faith unravelling and not knowing how to, to put it back together again if it ever would really. Um, and, and through that time, I have had so many visits, actually often by clergy who've come a bit like Nicodemus, really, not literally at night, but under the kind of cover of anonymity, um, asking if they can take me out for a drink or for lunch or walk around the heath or somewhere, um, really to have a conversation they feel they can't have where they are um, in their church, with their church members or, or with their bishops or superintendents or whoever it is. Um, but needing really to be able to say what's going on inside. And it seems so sad to me really that the church, which ought to be a, a safe space for people to doubt and question and explore, um, it, to be authentic, um, that so often it's quite the opposite. It's a place where people feel intimidated by the fact that they are supposed to conform, they are supposed to sign up to certain things and so on. Over the past few years, since being at St. Luke's, um, pr probably, you know, my, my book, How to Be a Bad Christian, marked the fact that uh, my attention was shifting a bit more outside, actually, beyond the kind of those who were on the inside hanging on, hoping to stay in touch. To those, and you know, I think there are hordes and hordes of people outside of uh, the formal sort of 
arena of religion and the church uh, who want to have meaningful conversations, who want to explore uh, in an honest and open sort of fashion. And uh, my work as a parish priest has given me amazing opportunities to do that. And for that, I'm deeply grateful, actually, to the Church of England. And so uh, I've described myself in, the, in uh, I may get to it in a bit, but in the last uh, sort of pages of this book as a liberal evangelist. And uh, this may sound like an oxymoron, um, but I think that, you know, we need some passion about a gospel that isn't narrow and mean, spirited and conservative, but which is open and inclusive and engaging. So there are two stories, actually, in Black Sheep and Prodigals about communion, which is a deeply important part of my life. Um, one of them concerns hobnobs. Um, <laughs> you can ask me about that later if you want. The other one is what I want to begin with. So when I told a neighbour on my road who says that she doesn't believe in God, that 15 Muslim students came to our midnight mass at Christmas and received communion... I'm not joking, she literally wept for joy in the street. Go steady, Dave, she said. You're going to get me out of bed on a Sunday morning if you're not careful. So I said, steady, steady. Most of us, you see, I think, have had enough of black and white religion. Not just when it leads to suicide bombings and terrorists uh, and the likes, but also when people insist on having a monopoly on God or truth about God, which we know has to transcend what any of us can get our heads around or conceptualize or comprehend. To be honest, I had no idea that the group of students were Muslims. Um, Midnight Mass, as you know, is always bursting with visitors and faces that I don't recognize. The students were just part of the crowd with no particular indication that they were of a different faith. When midnight struck, the church descended into customary, delightful chaos with everyone wishing those around them happy Christmas and sharing the peace of Christ with a handshake or a hug. A few minutes later, we stood around the altar. We have a, a large round altar at the center of the church. We don't have any pews. It's just a big open space, a round altar, and we gather in the round. And uh, so there we were to celebrate the first Mass of Christmas. And... Uh, <clears throat> This is the point at which, in many churches, an invisible line divides uh, the, the innies from the outies, if you like, those who qualify to receive communion from those who don't. Uh, I'm afraid to admit that no such distinction exists at St. Luke's West Holloway. Our approach to communion is based on the example of Jesus in the Gospels, where he ate and drank with all and sundry, often including people who were snubbed or rejected by the religious establishment, so-called sinners. I think it makes quite a difference, actually, if you explore your Eucharistic theology around the table fellowship of Jesus rather than simply the Last Supper, which, which is obviously part of the picture. So I therefore offered the invitation I give every Sunday. I did it earlier today. This is the table of Jesus Christ, where all are welcome and no one is turned away. And so we offer bread and wine to every single person here without exception. If you would like to receive communion, please come forward. God welcomes all. As people came forward that night for communion, it was clear that more than usual were opting for non-alcoholic wine, alternative to wine. Uh, but it never actually occurred to me that this was because some of them were Muslims. Afterwards, the students beamed as they spoke of the warm welcome that they had found among us. With all the hatred and violence going on in the world, we wanted to join with Christian brothers and sisters in celebrating the birth of Jesus, one young man told me with a broad grin and a very lovely twinkly eye. It was actually their very first experience of being in a church, and they chose us. And uh, neither they nor we will forget it. The following day, in a Christmas post on Facebook, I told the story of our midnight encounter with visitors from the East, maintaining that... Uh, <laughs> maintaining that a common humanity is surely more important than our religious denominations. Many people liked the post, uh, but there were also comments and emails from people who were concerned, who disagreed. Some made reference to St. Paul's warning about eating and drinking the bread and the wine unworthily. I replied that Paul's comments actually had nothing to do with whether people believed the right things or belonged to the correct religious group. It was about people behaving toward each other 
in the wrong way. It was about division and discrimination in the community, about people showing contempt for others instead of compassion and inclusion. Ultimately, it was about not recognizing God in the other. One email I received stated emphatically that the God Muslims worship is not the same God that Christians worship. To which I want to say, how do you know that? I actually don't know that, uh, so I don't know how you know it. Um, yes, of course, we have different doctrines and beliefs about God that can't simply be set aside. Um, but as I later discussed through, through the book, this may simply express the impossibility of any human words or categories to define or contain God. Surely it's time, surely it's time to stop stating categorically what we cannot possibly know for certain. And that covers a whole range of things, and not just the religious world, I think. In a world torn apart by black and white religious assertions about God and the will of God, surely we need the humility to stick with what we can be sure of, which is that love trumps, as it were, everything else. <laughs> and actually, the presence of the Muslims at midnight mass seems wonderfully appropriate because, after all, according to Matthew's Gospel, the infant Jesus was visited by well-wishers from the East, the Magi or wise men, Persian astrologers, probably Zoroastrians. Uh, there's no suggestion in this interfaith event, which is what actually the nativity is, um, there's no suggestion that the visitors converted to Judaism, much less Christianity. Uh, to them, Jesus did not appear as a sectarian figure, but the bearer of good news to the world, to all people. And I'm sure they never left without sharing a meal or two with the Holy Family and others, a de facto act of communion, if you will, to celebrate the birth of this child. Now, I didn't set out to offer communion to a group of Muslims at midnight mass, but you know, I'm extremely glad that I did. To refuse them would surely be the equivalent of sending the Magi packing with the gifts unopened. Um, <laughs> in my younger days, I looked for God in Christian activities, Bible reading, prayers, church worship and the like, all of which still have a very significant place in my life. But the nature of them has radically changed with the years. Now I see my whole life existed at the time within a tiny bubble, when in fact the whole earth was full of God's glory. My God was far too small. Now as Marx alluded to, you know, I have started this book by saying I am a black sheep. That's my first confession. I, I may certainly have a conformity deficit. Um, as soon as someone utters a certainty or tells me that I have to do this or believe that, the opposite tends to come to mind. Uh, my, my dad preferred to call it being pig-headed, to which I would pig-headedly reply, well, it takes one to know one. <laughs> now, I'm not wishing to promote stubbornness to the status of a virtue, and I regret my youthful obstinacy with my dad. I, he died when I was 17, and there's many conversations I now wish I could have had with him. But I do think it's important in life to discover what you believe. I mean, what you really believe, not what you're told to believe, but what really are the values um, and the important things that are embedded within you instead of being pressurized into going along with the crowd. Authenticity, it seems to me, is actually a basic spiritual quality. Religion, on the other hand, often seems to require conformity. The church has a long history of suppressing dissenting voices uh, with heresy trials and grand inquisitions, witch hunts and the like. It's an approach that's mostly disappeared now, mostly I say, but faith is still something that folk can be very black and white about. At one extreme, some people will blow up planes, shoot holiday makers or drive trucks into crowds of shoppers because they believe they're serving the purpose of God. But even at a much more innocent level, there are plenty of people who are so certain that their version of religion is correct that they will write off everyone who disagrees. Now, my book isn't for the spiritually certain. Uh, There's kind of a little health warning I want to put on. If you are spiritually certain, don't bother reading this. You'll probably have a heart attack. Uh, it's, it's for people who are fed up with black and white religion, who long for something more humane and open-ended. It's for the multitudes who may be on the edges or outside of mainstream religion, who reject traditional interpretations of Christianity and yet actually in their hearts long to believe 
Now, I don't know if it's just me, but I meet these people all the time, and I'm sure you do too. Uh, a short while back, I gave a talk to um, an audience of predominantly church-going people. It was actually in a pub um, opposite a church. Um, and so there were quite a number of the people from the church who came, I think as much as anything, to sort of check out what was going on on their patch. Um, after a period of antagonistic questioning after I'd talked, um, a young man asked if he could say something. He was right at the back of the, of the crowd. There was about 80 or 90 people packed into this room in a pub. Um, and so he spoke and he said, I'm not a churchgoer. I'm an atheist. Uh, actually, I'm only here because my girlfriend brought me. I've been to lots of church events with her, and mostly it all sounds to me like gobbledygook. But what I've heard tonight almost persuades me to believe in God, not just because of what the speaker said, but because of the way he said it. It felt like I was being invited into an adult conversation about God, one in which my views would genuinely be taken into account, instead of just listening to a monologue. Now, I can see why, I can see why, you know, I see the attraction of black and whiteness in many fields of life. I mean, it means never having to rethink everything, um, never being confronted by a reality that you can't understand, never having to really engage with things which are unfamiliar or foreign, always feeling safe in the security of the sheepfold. But this is cloud cuckoo land, isn't it? Not really, uh, <coughs> it's not reality, it's cloud cuckoo land. Um, as Benjamin Franklin said, only two things in life are certain, death and taxes. The rest is open for discussion. Uh, I know that St. Paul had the Damascus Road experience, well, he invented it, actually, um, when, <laughs> when he saw a great light and was converted. But I confess I'm mostly quite wary of people who see great lights. Uh, I'm more inclined toward the experience of the former poet laureate Andrew Motion, who said, I've seen the light. It flickers on and off like a badly wired lamp. He goes on to say that this is probably the experience of millions of people who inhabit what he calls the ambivalent middle ground in religion. So my book uh, here is definitely of the badly wired lamp variety, um, directed at those millions in the ambivalent mil middle ground. Uh, I'm not in any way trying to say here's the truth. I've found it. I'm, I'm, I am a wandering black sheep looking down what I think are some intriguing back lanes, uh, trying to discover a faith that I really can believe in, and, and that's what I invite readers to join in with. Actually, I think that we all have an inner black sheep. It's just more hidden in some people than others. But I think we all have an inner black sheep, a wayward, independent side. And actually, I would argue that our spiritual development depends on finding our inner black sheep and learning to integrate it into our daily lives. <clears throat> it's the instinct to question the status quo, to swim against the tide, to explore a different path, to be authentic. Um, our more controlling, fearful self tells us, oh, get back in line, you know, tells us to fit in, to play things safe. But until we begin to accept and engage this spiritual shadow side to us, we cannot really grow in faith or even as individuals. Parker Palmer, a wonderful Quaker writer from America whose work I like a lot, he writes, I want to learn how to hold the paradoxical poles of my identity together, to embrace the profoundly opposite truths that my sense of self is deeply dependent on others dancing with me and that I still have a sense of self when no one wants to dance. See, Black Sheep's spirituality, as I'm expressing it in this book, focuses on this tension. It's not about being a loner or spurning community. I'm deeply committed to community. But learning to value our own instincts at least as much as we do those of others and having the courage to stand by them. And uh, <clears throat> the natural assumption, of course, is that churches and other religious groups will be the obvious setting for people to grow in what I would call spiritual intelligence. And sometimes they are. However, emails and messages that I receive most days of my life actually say something different. Um, even when I was writing this book, a woman from New Zealand told me that she feels her church is more of a religious kindergarten than the university of the spirit that she hoped to find. That's quite something, isn't it? 
There's no room for me to live, breathe, be my own person, she said. If I'm going to be accepted, I'll need to fit in, to be a virtual carbon copy of everyone else. But I won't be that. Now, you see, the church hemorrhages people like this all the time. It's been happening for decades now. They're the black sheep, the prodigals, prone to wandering from the well-worn path, who ask the wrong questions, struggle to fit in, and yet often they're the ones, I think, who are the most perceptive and spiritually switched on people. Conformity, bear in mind, is not a fruit of the Spirit. Check it up in the book. Conformity is not a fruit of the Spirit. Quite the reverse. I think it's a product of fear and intimidation. Christian spirituality, I think, actually is too often couched, and this is true in songs and sermons and prayers that are often there. Christian spirituality is too often understood and couched in passive terms like obedience and submission, as if we were meant to be compliant infants instead of grown adults with questions and healthy skepticism and a voice to speak back. So we end up with a religious subculture of conformity where fear inhibits any sense of real faith and adventure. In many churches, especially of the, the more conservative ilk, the culture of conformity is actually intentionally nurtured in the name of things like holiness or discipleship. God may be perceived as a father, but definitely an authority figure with a plan for people's lives that has to be known and obeyed. So being a good Christian involves becoming uh, weak in some way, certainly dependent on the Almighty, but maybe also on the church leaders as God's representatives. And phrases like only believe, trust and obey, lean not on your own understanding, become mantras that cultivate a mentality of learned helplessness, a psychology of compliance. <clears throat> Ron is someone I, I could mention. Ron grew up in this kind of church culture, and up until his mid-twenties, he looked like the perfect model of a good Christian. He gave his heart to Jesus when he was 13, as I did, was baptized as an adult two years later, and by the time he was 19, was helping to lead an alpha group in the church with no awareness of any serious questions or queries about his faith. I was like a perfect sheep, he told me, heading in the same direction as everyone else, never questioning whether it was the right direction, never doubting what I was told, never allowing myself any stray thoughts. But life at university brought Ron a raft of doubts and questions. Perhaps it was living away from home and not going to his church regularly, uh, or maybe issues raised by his coursework, or just beginning to see Christianity through the eyes of his non church-going friends, but his faith just began to unravel. It was as if I was suddenly outside the bubble of certainty and unquestioning compliance, he said. It was kind of scary, but also liberating. Now, by complete contrast with the approach Ron experienced in his church background, Tom, the head of an RE school, a comprehensive school in Essex, where I went to speak to all the different year groups um, frightens the life out of me actually going speaking to kids you know I, I mean I, I make it's Sunday so I make a confession you know um, I woke up that morning and thought I haven't a clue what I'm going to say to all these kids you know and uh, and wished I hadn't said yes and then I was driving there and, I, and even up to getting to the outskirts of the town I was thinking I could pull a sickie mm -hmm. you know <laughs> <laughs> But I went and had the most fantastic time. And uh, Tom, who's the head of RE in this school, told me that, you know, he said, I've got two, two things, really, Dave. He said, my, in my job, he said, I, I, on the one hand, I have to get these kids through exams. I have to get a certain amount of information to them to get them through exams. He said, that's not what I'm really about. That's not why I'm a teacher. Um, he said, my objective in talking about religion, ethics, and philosophy is to help students to think for themselves to find an opinion. What a great thing that is. And um, a lot of young people in his school came from uh, unreflective secular homes and backgrounds where religion and faith is hardly even mentioned. But it doesn't really much matter whether we are model religious sheep or model secular sheep. Uh, a sheep, in these terms, is a sheep. Someone trapped in a sheepfold of unquestioned assumptions, meekly heading in the same direction, maybe very bright or intellectual, yet spiritually unawakened, seldom uh, applying themselves to these big questions. And for me, I have to say, knowing that there are people like Tom, and actually, 
you know, as, as the, the day went forward and I was with all these different year groups, I was deeply impressed by the quality of questions that these kids were asking me. And in fact, at the end with the sixth formers, the way that they were speaking to each other, because one was asking me a question and someone else came in and answered that question. And I was so impressed at, uh, at the quality of contributions. Knowing that there are people like Tom teaching our young people gives me great hope. Uh, but I think, I fear there are too few of them actually. Education should not be about creating good hoop jumpers who can navigate their way through predictable demands of the system or spew out memorized information for an exam. Um, it should be about enabling students to think for themselves, to become curious, to engage with life imaginatively and discover their own mind, establish their own values and measures of success. And that is exactly the same in the church, I think. That that is my vision of a properly functioning church. Um, where people are being nurtured in their spiritual intelligence to think and perceive. And if that's going to happen, well, the truth is conformity, I think, is the enemy of spiritual intelligence. Um, in order to develop spiritual intelligence, we have to have the scope to not conform, to question, to doubt, to speak back, to find our own opinions. Maybe in 10 years' time we won't agree with those opinions, but that's part of the journey that we have to go through. So church shouldn't be a place to absorb hand-me-down information about God and Christianity or to become conformed to a particular Christian outlook. Um, I do believe that we need church communities that are laboratories of the spirit, uh, to turn a phrase pinched from uh, R.S. Thomas in one of his poems, which I, I would, uh, it just fired me up when I read that phrase, laboratories of the spirit. Places where we can explore issues of faith and spirituality with openness, imagination and creativity. In an era when fundamentalist certainty on the one hand or wishy-washy moralism on the other uh, appear to many outside the church to be the only options on offer, we need hotbeds, I think, hotbeds of passionate diversity. Schools of independent thinking and believing, spirited settings of debate and difference where multiple integrities can coexist in friendship and love. Does that sound appealing to you? It certainly does to me. And so I've, I've listed really in the, one of the chapters in the book what I think such communities will nurture, uh, that they, how they will nurture what I'm calling black sheep spirituality. And what does that mean? Well, there's a few bullet points I put to what I think black sheep spirituality. It's an approach to faith that can embrace a particular tradition, in my case Christianity, without assuming that it has exclusive claims to truth. It's an approach to faith that sits comfortably with doubts and questions as an essential part of faith, that recognizes dissent and difference of opinion as something to cultivate as a sign of a secure community, that affirms the necessity of constantly renewing, reinterpreting, and reforming our beliefs in the light of new insights, new challenges, new situations, that embraces divine revelation wherever it may be found, in art and science and the natural world, as well as in religious traditions. All truth is God's truth. In the universal human experience of friendship, compassion, and justice, it's all over the place. A spirituality or an approach to faith that treats faith as something to be lived and practiced, not embalmed in rational beliefs or religious rituals. Now, black sheep spirituality, as I'm defining it here, is nothing new. Of course it isn't. <clears throat> the church has always produced its prodigals, People who've swum against the tide, thought outside the box, disobeyed the rules in their pursuit of greater understanding. Sometimes they've been left out or labelled heretics or suffered exclusion or worse. So this book really is my exercise in black sheep spirituality. It's my attempt to give an honest snapshot of my, what my faith means and what it doesn't mean without needing to justify it with proof texts from the Bible or making reference to existing ideas and interpretations. And I should stress, you know, I mean, the, the Bible is, is, you know, a hugely important part of my life. Uh, I read it most days and uh, I'm, I'm not abandoning uh, the, the sort of stuff of the Christian tradition. What I'm saying is, but what do you think? You know, try and look inside and find out what it is that you think, what you believe. So um, this book isn't a blueprint for other black sheep, if you like, or bad Christians to follow. It's more a summary of my own kind of faith in progress. 
uh, and a provocation, provocation for others to do the same. So it's kind of my credo. And um, all of the chapters, uh, I, I decided to, to frame them all. They're, all the titles are basically I believes. It's the stuff that I believe. Quite tongue-in-cheek in places, but you know. Um, so I've said I believe, actually, I believe beliefs are overrated. They're only words after all. I believe God is just a word. What would happen if we dumped it? I believe in poetry, art, and rock and roll. Did God write any good tunes lately? So what I'm doing here actually is looking at, it's kind of a bad Christian systematic theology really, though you won't find anything like that said about it. Um, but I, I'm looking at all the major themes that that particular chapter about poetry, art, and rock and roll is, is thinking about divine revelation. But instead of seeing that as something that is narrowly contained uh, within one book or within one particular interpretation of that book to say that actually divine revelation is all over the place and sometimes I am blown away by God when I find God in a film uh, in the cinema or by a song that I hear or by a poem or whatever it may be. I believe in evolution and the Big Bang and other creation myths. Uh, I believe in original goodness. We enter the world in a state of grace. Um, I, mean, I quite like the one, I believe someone who punishes his son for other people's shortcomings needs counselling, even if he is God. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <you can> see, <laughs> so I've given myself the freedom to actually delve into some of these things and say, well, but what do I really think about this stuff that I've been living with for decades and decades of my life? Um, without having to sort of try and give the right answer, without having to justify it with some verses from here or there. What do I really think? And I think that is actually an important thing to go through. After all, creeds, you know, are only snapshots of a particular place in time where people were asking certain questions and these were the answers that they came up with. Those may not be the questions at all. In fact, for me, they're definitely not the questions that I'm interested or I'm asking. Um, I think, in a way, I'm not not simply advocate or not advocating the abandoning of creeds. Actually, I want a lot more, but I want them to be much more ephemeral and now, and how does this work here? So two guiding factors um, drove me in writing this book. There were two sort of priorities that I sat down at the beginning and thought, this is what I, this, this is what I want to be guided by. One was that I wanted to explore a faith which is consonant with a 21st century scientific outlook. Um, I don't think the science is in, in itself some absolute certainty about everything. I think that, that, that science itself is a field of exploration in which new things are being learned all the time and knowledge is revised and so on and so forth. But I think in terms of understanding the universe and our place in it, science does give us the best shot of, of understanding that from a sort of, um, from a sort of tr truthful or factual kind of perspective, if you like. And therefore, I think that any authentic faith lived out in this world has to take that seriously and find out how does a more scientific outlook illuminate these issues. I'm not saying that I'm abandoning, you know, the stories and myths and insights and wisdom that we have from the faith tradition, far from it. But I think it's about bringing these two things into conversation, into sometimes maybe a heated argument bet between each other but it's somehow there's something very exciting in that argument in the kind of sparks that fly when you bring these things together so you know I'm, I'm starting from the assumption that you know I am part of we are all part of the 13 billion odd you know year history of the universe I'm part of a process of biological evolution and that has a, a significant bearing on how I interpret things like original sin, let's say, or, or whatever else it may be. So that was my one guiding factor, you know, to be consonant with a 21st century scientific outlook. The other was that I wanted to explore a faith which was humane, because I've come to the conclusion after decades of being in the church and living with the Christian faith that there's so much that I think is inhumane, so much that sort of persecutes and oppresses people rather than liberates them. And that, it seems to me, is, is, is you know, something that, that, that just can't sit easy. So it's how to, to kind of bring these two things together. Am I nearly through with my time, or mm -hmm. still got a few minutes? Um, so uh, the, in the sort of, you know, 
so I'm, I'm looking, as I say, at things like the, the, the question of sin. We recognize that the human condition is a flawed condition. Um, but if we move away from sort of thinking that in some literal sense, you know, the story of Adam and Eve in the garden tells us how all this came about, um, then I think we, we do end up in cloud cuckoo land. I can't believe that. I think that story, the stories of, of Genesis and stories of, are, are deeply truthful. They bring uh, important and vital insights into uh, the human condition and how we understand our place in the world. Um, but I think that we have to t take those stories and bring them, as I say, into an exciting conversation with the insights of science, with things, for instance, that are coming out of primatology these days, you know, about our nearest neighbors in the biological sort of uh, spectrum, and seeing what, what people are discovering there about, about their evolution and, and how that connects. So there's all sorts of interesting things there. Now, when my book, How to Be a Bad Christian and a Better Human Being, was launched, it was launched actually in a beer tent, at the Greenbelt Festival in 2012. The publisher, uh, my publisher, beautiful, lovely people at Hodder, uh, cut a deal with the brewery uh, in the, uh, the brewery tent to rename one of their beers Bad Christian, uh, <laughs> which proved very popular. I mean, the beer, that is. Uh, and actually, people still now ask me where they can buy Bad Christian beer. And, uh, and, the, and the brewery have carried on using the name because, uh, you know, it's... It's done okay, so hey. Um, the weather on that day of the launch was foul. I mean, it was perfect festival conditions. We waded through inches of mud to reach this bustling canvas pub, the Jesus Arms, it's called. Even the tent floor was just covered in sludge. Uh, and of course, none of us cared at all. But once you take your shoes off, you don't care, really. Um, after a rabble-rousing evening, free beers on the publisher definitely helped. It was, I think it was the first hundred pints were get free. <laughs> so the people queued up trying to get more than one. Um, a friend commented to me at the end of the evening, said, You were on fire tonight, Dave. You were like a liberal evangelist, someone else kind of quipped. And, and I laughed, but I, I later lay awake, awake in bed with this phrase going round and round in my head, liberal evangelist. It sounded, as I said earlier, like an oxymoron. Liberal and evangelical approaches to faith often represent quite different ends of the spectrum. But in the wee small hours there, the combinations sort of appealed to me. I thought, this is my calling card. Uh, because, you see, I do believe that the world needs a generous-spirited, progressively-minded faith proclaimed with all the zeal and passion of an evangelist. Black and white religion, like black and white thinking in general, is, is a large part, I would say, of, of our problem. It's part of the problem of the world. In, in politics, uh, as much as in religion, all fields of life, it seems that, you know, we're, we're sort of burdened and oppressed by people who know the right way of, of whatever it is. And uh, I don't think there's, there's any real way forward. Black and white religion generates an us and them kind of mentality. It interprets sacred texts and traditions in a way that locks us into the past instead of thrusting us forward into the future. It feeds our fear of difference instead of helping us to see beyond it. It imposes prescribed beliefs and morals that inhibit us thinking for ourselves and discovering the way we really what we really believe deep down. Basically, black and white religion stunts the growth of spiritual intelligence. And that sort of, you know, this inhumanity that it produces, something I see again and again. I mean, I think of a, a lovely, lovely young couple, two women uh, who were part of, of our church. Um, one was the daughter of a priest in the Anglican church and uh, had kind of left her faith but was, was coming back and wanting to find it again, wanting to explore. Her partner, Jude, was uh, brought up in a kind of mildly atheistic sort of background. She had no interest in religion or God, but she did have a lot of interest in Becky, and so, you know, they were sort of on this little journey together. And they came to St. Luke's, and uh, they ended up having two children. I baptized both of them. Very exciting. This is, this is 21st century life, isn't it? Three lots of grandparents, and, uh, you know, three parents. Uh, I mean, very, very exciting. And... Um, Jude said to me one day after some further pronouncement had been made in the church about same-sex relations, 
um, she said to me, Dave, I love you. I love your church. I like everything you say and you're about, but how can I belong to an institution that fundamentally rejects who I am as a person, that, that won't give me a place at the table? And it's a hard question to answer, you know. And um, I think that often when people make their black and white pronouncements on things, there's little thought to what the pastoral implications are to all sorts of people. Um, it may play to a certain gallery, but what does it do to all those other people out there? And this is just one issue I'm mentioning. I think there are umpteen others too. I recall a cartoon that, of uh, someone holding a sign that said, Christ is the answer. You've probably seen it. And behind was another person with a sign saying, what was the question? Uh, I don't believe that the sectarian Christ of black and white Christianity is the answer really to very much. But the, Jesus I find, but the Jesus I find in the Gospels helps to answer a great number of things. The Jesus who championed the poor and the marginalized, who treated women as real people at a time when they were the chattels of a patriarchal society. The Jesus who forgave his killers and invited a dying thief to join him in paradise. If this Jesus were here today, I believe he would lead his disciples on a pride march. He would be in refugee camps helping people to find a life apart from guns and bombs. He would support the sexually abused and also liberate the offenders from the self-hatred that drives them to harm others. I believe that Jesus of the Gospels would still be weeping over Jerusalem and supporting those who strive for justice and reconciliation in the Middle East. I believe he would call vigorously for the pulling down of all walls, lit literal walls and metaphorical walls. I mean, I am a Christian. I make no apology for that fact at all. I am a Christian, but I have little interest in spreading Christianity as such. I'm far more interested in fueling a new Jesus movement, actually. Because when I come back and look at the Jesus in the Gospels, I find a figure that's quite different to the Christ that we've found exalted in so much uh, of religion. As Karen Armstrong writes, Jesus did not spend a great deal of time discoursing about the Trinity or original sin or the incarnation, which have preoccupied later Christians. He went around doing good and being compassionate. But in the end, folks, I think there's not much good in just thinking about what Jesus might do if Jesus were here today. What is really important, I mean vital actually, is to discover the spirit of Jesus in our hearts and in our lives and to go out there and let that shine through. And so my book finishes with, I, I, somebody, somebody once asked me, um, a, a young person in somewhere I was speaking, said, you know, do, do, you have a, do you have a sort of bad Christian's mission statement? So uh, I have to say, I'd never really thought about that and didn't intend to give a great deal of time to it. But when I was writing this book, I just found this little slogan came to my mind that summarized things for me, which is, live passionately, believe skeptically, love recklessly. And that is really a summary of everything that, that I'm trying to say in this book, that, that that's what it means to me to be a follower of Jesus today. So thank you for listening. Uh, thank you, Dave, very much indeed. I've learned a new word, primatology. <laughs> I, I thought it meant the study of the primates of the Anglican Communion, maybe. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'd I'd That's a much less interesting period. Make of them, um, thank you so much. Uh, wonderful sort of opening up of the book for us today. And we have about a quarter of an hour for your questions to Dave now. Sir. I'm slightly disturbed by this, frankly, because um, although I believe, and you said in your talk, that the wind of God's grace is blowing all the time, and I'm, I'm stealing this phrase, by the way, and you can put up if you just have to pull up your sail and catch it, and that spirituality, God, whatever, divinity, can be found almost anywhere if you approach it in the right way and are receptive. All the same, aren't we trying to run before we can walk here? Isn't this rather a dangerous approach for people who've got no real basis? And isn't it actually essential to any kind of spirituality that a certain basic morality and a certain basic discipline have to be there? Uh, you know, in the same way that a stake has to be there uh, for a young tree until it's grown strong enough to stand on its own two feet. 
Yes, I don't disagree with that. Um, I, I, I think that um, I, I remember, you know, former Bishop, Bishop of London, Richard Charter, saying to me once, you know, where are people getting the grammar of the gospel, Dave? And I think it was a good question of saying, you know, that, that, that to engage in a conversation about faith in today's world and its relationship to other faiths and all those sort of things, you have to have a, a language to begin with. You have to have a starting point. And I think that's true, arguably, as well, in, in what you've been indicating about sort of uh, morality and so on. I mean, I think that with our, as a parent, to, with our children, our three children, we, we always sort of took the view that there is a stage in their life, in our, in our experiences as parents, in which we sort of teach them some what's, you know, this is what you're going to do. Um, and that, at a much earlier stage than most people think, has to sort of transfer into this is why we do what we do, to sort of talk at the level of values rather than just sort of, you know, kind of procedures and this and behavior um, and, and then that needs to move as I say often these things need to move more quickly than they often do to the place of it's over to you you know you have to now make your decisions so I think a similar kind of you know uh, attitude approach is is sort of present in in all fields of life that I think um, you know the, the, the children in our church um, are taught about what we believe are patterns of good behavior and so on and so forth um, but it doesn't mean to say that you know that more or, or on top of that what we're also trying to do is lead them toward the place where they begin to think about those things for themselves and make up their own decisions so I, I you know I don't think I'm a long way from what you're saying um, but I think what I'm perhaps stressing is that the emphasis needs to shift hugely in a different direction that when you've got um, you know, adult people who, uh, you know, it's like you know Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I think his his whole notion of of a church come a world come of age wasn't saying that the world therefore is mature and is going to behave in wonderful mature ways. But I think he said come of age in the sense that it is no longer going to just simply be dictated to by authority figures in the church about morality and doctrine and so on and so forth. And uh, so I think it's I think it's just getting getting the balance right there, you know. Um, I'm glad that I've got the background that I have, which gives me the language and vocabulary and grammar to have a conversation, and I want to certainly help people to have that, but not so that they just then recite over and over, you know, the things, that, the, the parrot fashion things they've learned, but so that they can then engage with the issues at a bigger level. This woman here in the I, um, I, I relate to a lot of what you say in that I'm, I'm very much someone who likes to question things and not to go with the status quo and be authentic and all this sort of stuff. Uh, but I just actually, I have and have had in the past uh, quite a few friends who I think you would describe as sort of sheep in that they come from quite conservative backgrounds and they sort of stayed with that all of their life. Um, and I have to say that I think that does work for some people in that they don't need to question everything, but they still find a genuine way to like live out their faith. You know, it shows them fruit of love and care for others and hospitality. And, and some of these people are wonderful. And so I, I've, I've come to my conclusion is is that there are some people who naturally ask questions, um, and they have to do that anyway, and that's great. And there's some people who, who are forced into asking questions because life goes in such a way for them that wherever they started, faith doesn't work anymore. But there are still some people who don't need to do that. And I'm just wary of forcing people to ask sure. questions yeah. if they're making their faith work in a really positive way where they are mm. until yeah, they I need think... to move somewhere else, you know? Yeah, I think that my, my concern is, is not with the people who are perfectly happy and content with where they are, um, I mean, I might throw a few upsetting things in now and again because I like to do that. But, um, but that's not really what I'm, you know, my, my concern is much more with the people who, whose lives are bubbling with questions and issues that they can't resolve and are therefore sometimes completely walking away from faith and from an engagement with, with faith issues um, because they, they, they're not being able to have those adult kind of conversations and so on. 
Sure. Yeah. Those have time to find people to have those conversations with is really, really tricky. Yeah, I don't. I don't feel it's my mission to go into sort of churches of perfectly contented people and sort of. Yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. No, I, I, I understand that. And when I look back to the, you know, I grew up in a brethren church in in Liverpool, a very long time ago, and um, I, I think that what they gave me was the Bible. And I'm very grateful to that. It served my knowledge of the Bible has served me throughout my life. It's always been important and central to me. Um, I also recall people there who were actually really lovely people, who you know, whose whose lives and, and attitudes and so on I, I still respect and feel I've 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 gained and been enriched by them. Um, for me, it was a setting that was never going to hold me because. Uh, it was far, far too prescriptive, and um, you know, at the at the time, really, you know, when I was probably in my mid to late teens, uh, you know, I was bored silly with it all. I just couldn't, you know, I was interested in Liverpool Football Club, uh, the Beatles, and girls, and the only thing the church had really out of that was girls. So, that <laughs> that that did work for me for a while. I think that the best six forms are doing a great job of trying to encourage the authentic self and questioning. Um, but what happens when someone gets to that point where they're they're in the debate, but they aren't open-minded enough? They aren't. They don't come to it with an open mind. Um, so that they, what I found is even when I express my position, it isn't perhaps taken. Um, it isn't considered in, with the amount of seriousness that I would, that I would expect. So, so it's great for people to get to that point where they're willing to discuss and they have their, their passionate opinion. But it seems like there's another a next step that we don't talk about, which is how to interact when you're in that environment. Yes. yes. I mean, really, I think what you're talking about is, is, is the need for these kind of settings, you know, communities, churches, ideally, uh, you know, where people can have you know, these kind of adult conversations about faith and, and life and so on. And uh, that's part of what I'm sort of trying to advocate in the book. You know, the chapter toward the end is, is, is about trying to describe the sort of church community that I think we need in today's world. And it is one where, you know, there's, there's the security. You know, it's, I, I'm not looking for somewhere where, where there's a sort of constant almighty row, you know, where everything is being thrown up in the air all the time. And nothing, you know, you can't, you know, the furniture's changed every time you go there. I'm not, I'm not at all advocating that. But I think that, you, you know, we do need places where there is the, the safety and security that people can be honest and authentic. And, um, you know, but, but, but there's also a commitment to respect each other and to respect people who have, a, have very different views and approaches to ours. And, uh, and I, you know, I try to do that with people in other sections of the church. I hope, you know, I might poke fun a little bit here and there, but I'm, I'm, I'm not rubbishing people who see things differently to me at all. Um, and in fact, much of my life is spent in conversation with people who see things differently to me. And, uh, you know, I want to be respectful of that. But we do need more mature gatherings. And to me, the church is not providing enough of, of, of these mature settings where uh, meaningful honest conversations can go on. The sort of thing that we certainly did in Holy Joe's in the pub that Mark came to. Um, but there aren't, there aren't many places in the church where you can do that, in my experience. Can I just ask you an imaginary question? Uh, William Tindall, sort of translated book, sort of a plowboy reading. Mm. What do you think his reaction is at life? What do you think his reaction to your book? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yes, what a good question, but uh, an imponderable one, I think. I, I really don't know. I, I, you see, see, I think the trouble is, you know, that we look at people in a particular context, don't we? Uh, and it's very difficult to see how they would be in a different context. My hope is that people who, in their day and age, were people who were pushing the sort of borders, you know, and were wanting to sort of clear more space... Uh, for people to be able to, uh, to, to think and, and understand for themselves, my hope and belief would be that in, in the 21st century, uh, I would hope that they would be kindred spirits. Um, that's what I hope. Tyndale, of course, uh, said, because he said, little flock, little flock, because Christ is with us to the end of time, 
you can be bold. Mm. You can be bold. That's good. I didn't know that. Yes. Um, as, a, as a minister, I find myself preaching for very predominantly black congregations, predominantly African, but Caribbean as well. Mm. And I, I, I think I, one of the things I struggle is that there, there are some children who I know are being educated in, in this context and have all sorts of questions, and I've always seen it as kind of part of my ministry to, to engage with, with children theologically. Um, but but I, I suppose I, I find myself with a bit of a difficulty, and I'm wondering whether you have experience of this, of, of feeling I'm this white liberal, you know, a passionate yeah. liberal, but, but yeah. yes, you know, um, in, in a context that it, am I, uh, it, where I can be seen as racist if I'm, I'm somehow questioning that culture. Does that... Does that make sense, the, the kind of question yeah, I've got? Yeah, but, I, mean, I, mean, I, I think, think uh, only in the sense that, that I think, um, you know, that would be true of other religious cultures, um, other sections of the Christian church and so on. Um, I think that uh, it's, it's how we go about things, isn't it? And whether, whether in our heart of hearts we really do respect and include the, the opinions and views and approaches of other people... Um, I mean, I have to say that, you know, pr- probably some of the most provocative things that have shaped who I am have come from people in the Afro-Caribbean community, actually. Um, and, but but I, I know that, whether, whether you're talking about in the, in the sort of Afro-Caribbean church scene or, indeed, um, with, in, in other sections of the church, white sections of the church, that, that I, I do sometimes find that I am sort of um, rubbing people up with with some of the, the thoughts and questions I bring, but but um, I don't really see that as being anything primarily to do with uh, ethnicity or culture. I think I think that um, it's just to do with the different backgrounds that we've had and how we've arrived at where we are. Um, yeah, yeah, no. Well, 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 I I have I have. I have plenty of that, you know. I do have, I do have messages, letters, and things from people telling me that I'm going to hell and and all those sort of things. That uh, you know, mm. it's time for just one last question. And, and I'm afraid you were first, yes. Um, I'm a Quaker, oh, which is sort of down to yeah. Christian Central, um, and I love it being that. Um, and I was It's, it's, in, it's interesting that we, we, we at St. Luke's, we, we do have several Quakers uh, who, who are still Quakers, uh, but feel that they, there is something they get that they want to chew on at St. Luke's that they don't find there, and well, that's, that's, that's kind of a good thing, I think, really. I mean, perhaps the other reason they come is because I'm self-confessed very Quaker-oriented, you know, I, I've been a lover of, of Quaker 
things for most of my adult life, actually. I, you know, I've got whole collections of early Quaker writings and recent ones. And, um, and so I, I feel a lot in common with the Quakers. I've talked with, with Quakers at all sorts of levels in which I have expressed my uh, concern, on the one hand, that I think that Quakers actually, the Quaker values, I think, are very pertinent to today's world. But I don't think Quakers are the best at kind of selling the, the, what they have to offer to the world. And I think that this stuff needs to be thought about there. Uh, and the other thing is that um, I, I think, you know, there's a disconnection at times from their own roots, which I think is unfortunate and leaves this sort of certain level of impoverishment, which, which, which is why then some people have, feel they want to go elsewhere to sort of get something more in, really. So, you know, my... I, I've got every, everything good to say about the Quakers, but I would like to see a certain measure of reform taking place within Quakerism, as I would in other sections of the church, even though it would be different there. And uh, I think, really, in the end, uh, my, you know, to come back more to your question, is that I think that um, I don't... I, I am a member of the Church of England. I'm a vicar in the Church of England. I'm very, it's, it's, it's a dysfunctional family that has served me well. I, I, there's much, much that I love about it. And, and it's, it's, well, these last 17 years of being the vicar of the church where I am have been the most fruitful years of my life, without question. Um, but I think, you know, I'm not, I'm not an Anglican in that sort of narrow sense. I think I'm part of the family of faith uh, on all sorts of levels. And therefore, I think... We all have to have that sort of openness to draw from many different sources. And that's the world we live in now. It's the internet age, isn't it, where, you know, we don't have to just sort of be stuck down one particular track. Uh, I think we can know where we belong and where our roots are, whilst at the same time spreading our branches out and drawing on a, on a much wider sort of field of things. Can we just do a quick swap sure. while I just <laughs> sit down? Well, well, I promised you, uh, Dave is somebody who tends to err on the side of provocation. Uh, and I think you've heard uh, today that uh, he believes very much that too often, uh, I think Brian McLaren puts it this way, that too often at the moment, uh, if you are serious about pursuing the Christian way, you either find ignorance on fire or intelligence on ice. <laughs> and, and that you have, you have been arguing for hotbeds of passionate diversity. I think what I find when I listen to Dave is not a threat to orthodoxy, just a redefining of it, that orthodoxy may not be right belief. It may be more believing in the right way. And that would be a very significant, I think, understanding of orthodoxy for our, for our own day. Um, I, as I told you, first met him at Holy Joe's, and I remember walking away thinking of that quote in, um, uh, in Luke 4, in the King James Version. It says, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Um, it's a lovely translation. And I thought, actually, that's what Dave's ministry in Holy Joe's was, serving those that are bruised in, in many ways. And I, I don't think that's stopped at all. It's continued in a different way. I, I think um, you are really sort of Holloway's answer to Confucius, who once said, if you know all the answers, you haven't been asked all the questions. <laughs> um, but I want to end with your lovely quotation from Andrew Motion uh, about light, because... What I discern in you and in your writing and in the way that you talk is what you might call a flickering communion with God. Uh, it is flickering. Uh, we don't have all the light. And if you say you've got all the light, something dark's just shadowed you. <laughs> but it's still communion. It's still communion. And the communion with God is one that actually feeds you with hunger for more. And uh, I feel that very strongly in, in the way you write. And you do provoke, and we need provoking priests in the Church of England because, and this is my final comment, I'm, I'm wondering, as you've been speaking, whether one of the reasons the Church is so conformist in some ways is because it's a fairly anxious Church at the moment. And anxiety makes us conform quite readily. Um, and there are lots of things to be anxious about. But uh, um, Sarah Miles, who once came here, who was converted to Christianity by attending a Eucharist, uh, 
because she saw that the way that bread is shared there is how it ought to be shared in the world. She came to talk here once and she said, you know, people ask me about my Christian faith now. I, I was converted from atheism, she said. And they quote um, Amazing Grace and they say, you know, I once was blind but now I see. And she said, that's not me. With me it's more sort of, I once was blind and now I have really bad eyesight. <laughs> and you, you, you allow us to have really bad eyesight uh, and to still feel we're in communion. And for that, uh, on behalf of everybody here, thank you very much.